Greetings again, everyone. feel like a stranger here. It's been about three weeks since I've seen you. Last Sabbath, I was up in Denver, Colorado, and spoke to a group of our people who had been meeting in the new church building of the Church of God Seventh Day. So, of course, when they heard I was going to come, about a dozen or 14, I forget how many, of the Church of God Seventh Day people showed up, which, of course, obviously affected what I was going to be saying to our people. It was a little bit strange because uh, we are, of course, a totally separate organization and believe in certain things that are quite similar, almost identical. And, of course, I think you realize that I do believe that they are the parent church of the Radio Church of God, which became the Worldwide Church of God, which eventually uh, became, or out of which grew, out of necessity, the Church of God International. It really is the Church of God. The words worldwide or international or seventh day or any of these other appellatives or any added words before or after are rather irrelevant. And I couldn't help but talk to them about something that I'll save until the sermon here. I want to give you a couple of announcements that I want to talk to you about today. But briefly, it was that their history and our history are pretty much similar. And a gentleman who came up to me afterward asked, well, how can these churches all get together and cooperate? And I just had to tell him, they can't. And, you know, he didn't want to hear that any more than Elder Straub wanted to hear the same thing when he asked me how could these various groups all get together and unite and lock arms and really do a big and an important work in this country and other countries around the world. And I told him the same thing. And that's no different, really, than some of the problems that were extant in the church during the days of the Apostle Paul, as we'll talk about in a little while. But it was a very nice visit. We had, uh, I would imagine, around 25 or 30 to 35, I didn't count, of our own people there, a total of about 50, some people that came to meet together. And in the next few days, Mr. Carnes and Larry Watkins and I, Mr. Watkins and Mr. Carnes, since I started with Mr., I may as well keep calling you Mr. Larry, and Mr. Armstrong, all three of us, went up into the mountains and uh, put packs on our backs and walked a few miles from about the 9,000 foot to the 10,600 foot level and caught some beautiful trout and ate some rotten freeze-dried food. And uh, I have never tasted carrots and beans that didn't taste like carrots and beans before. They, if you throw them up in the air before you put water on them, they just kind of float away. But if you hold them down, don't let any breeze get to them and put water on them. They kind of soak up the water, and then you eat them, and it's just kind of like it's hot and it's mushy, but it has absolutely no flavor. It's yellow and it's green, but it has no flavor. And uh, anyway, it was good. I did what I wanted to do, and it took up two notches in my belt when I got back down off the mountain, and my legs are still aching a little bit, or you're still sore. I mean, my calves and legs are still real sore even now. But that was really, really good for us. I'm just sorry we couldn't have stayed about a week. It rained on us on the way in, and it rained on us all the way out. That's hard to believe while you're sitting down here in this 102 degrees, but uh, it was quite rainy, and I guess it got down to about 42 or 3 degrees one night only. And the rest of the time was in about the 50s, but it was very beautiful and very pleasant to be up there. Well, it's good to be home again, too, and uh, we're expecting the newspaper to come out this next week. It should have been put to bed and go to the press very shortly. I wanted to announce that we are going to step out on faith, and you'll read a little bit about that in the letter that I have coming to you. That means that we may even have to cut back in some area in order to be able to afford what we are going to do. But it's just too good to pass up. 
We've been offered on a cable station, which is a, na a network affiliate. It's a UHF station. I forget the channel number. Do you know, Mr. Dart? 23 or so. It's up in the 20s, but it's up in the Akron, Dayton, Cleveland, Ohio Valley area at 9.30 a.m. on Sunday morning. And we were predicting that it will outpull probably any other television station we have, including Los Angeles, Shreveport, and all the others, and maybe a couple, three of them put together. The problem is it costs $750 a program. That's $3,000 a month. Now, that's not chicken feed, but on the other hand, that's less per month for four programs up there in that very heavily populated area where we've had a lot of impact in the past then we would have to spend for just one program in, say, Washington, D.C., where they want $3,500 or $4,000 for just one half hour. And it goes on up from there. It's a lot more than that in some of the other big cities. So that's very, very good news. I'm going to be writing a letter to people about that. I've already written a couple of letters, pre-festival letters, sending out the Holy Day offering envelopes and talking a little bit about the Feast of Tabernacles, and also another letter which was addressed to the entire mailing list, and we're hoping for good results on that. Through a little bit of a misunderstanding or a mix-up or whatever, my misunderstanding of a secretary's message, I guess I had the people in Dallas and Fort Worth all up on their ear in the last few hours, but we will be leaving shortly after church, and they're having a pre-festival uh, kickoff kind of a party for the Denton and the Dallas and the Fort Worth area churches tonight. And I didn't realize I was going to go. So last night, Mr. E.B. Vance called me and said, I understand you're coming over. And I said, no, I hadn't heard a word about it. Oh, you hadn't? And I said, no. And so, of course, I gave him the negative. And finally, he said, well, okay, I'll tell everybody. And, and I said, yeah, I haven't been in Tyler for weeks, and I feel I ought to stay there today. And uh, so I just didn't uh, plan on going over. So this morning, a very distraught uh, couple of people called, including Larry Brookerson and my secretary and some other people. And what? You're not going? You promised you were going to go. Then I tried to call E.B. Vance back to tell him I'm coming, so now I can imagine what's happening during services. Brookerson is saying he's coming, and Vance is saying he's not coming. I talked to him last night in the telephone. Brookerson's going to say, I talked to him today. Are you sure? You know, I can just see it. So anyway, we're going to try to go over there and, and join the people with a little bit of a sing-along or something this evening. So I won't be staying around too long after services. We'll have to get going, hit the road, and try to get back sometime around 1 or 2 a.m., I imagine, by the time it's all over. You know, in thinking through what I had to tell the brethren up there in Denver, Denver is the headquarters of the Church of God's Seventh Day. And though there is no direct corporate connection, so far as ownership is concerned, between the Denver headquarters and their publishing house out there that puts out the Bible Advocate, and this new wooden church building in which I spoke on the Sabbath. Uh, they are all pretty much autonomous and independent so far as their local congregations are concerned. It still did bring back the memories of that time when I was there at the invitation of their leadership and where many of their ministry, including their national ministry, and Elder Straub and many others were there. And I went back to my babyhood when I was the age of some of these boys here and younger, sleeping on the second row of the church pew up in Eugene, Oregon, and recalled how they would stand up and they would read the Ten Commandments in unison every single service, that they had prayer meetings, which were real prayer meetings. Now, a lot of you, when you were in the Baptist or the Methodist Church, you went to prayer meeting on Wednesday, but they never prayed very much. It was more of a study or a sermon or whatever it was they did. 
But in these sessions, it was, it was kind of a carryover, I guess, from the early days of Pentecostalism, and everybody literally got on their knees, and there was a little altar up in front of the pulpit, and my father would come out from behind the pulpit and would kneel at the altar. And of course, as a kid, I, I became somewhat of a cynic. I wasn't all that impressed, especially with Mrs. Fisher, who inevitably would wait out my father and everybody else, and it was a waiting game that would be played. Because the person who could pray the last could pray, obviously, the longest and get in the last word. And they prayed audibly, women and men. And they would cry. You know, they'd break down. They would cry in their prayers. And I'm sure that some of those people, or maybe most of them, maybe I should just say all of them, were sincere. But, you know, you can be sincere, and you can also be sincerely misguided or sincerely misled or sincerely ignorant or sincerely wrong. And what they were doing was not, I don't think, all that right. I'm not so sure that uh, the Bible would allow women to pray orally in church and everybody sit there and listen, but that would be something some churches would debate. I found myself growing a little bit cynical as the years went by because as a boy growing up in high school, I was denied all the sports activities on Friday night. I was the weird little kid whose dad was a preacher who lived way out on the west side of town in the unincorporated outside the city limits area with no sewage. I was embarrassed and ashamed by what my father did, but I well remember, and it came back with far more lucidity when I had a lengthy talk with my sister, Dottie, how the members of the Church of God Seventh Day and the ministry of the Church of God Seventh Day and my father's organization were all part and parcel the same body for many, many years, clear on up into the middle 1940s. I remember now that every Sabbath for years, when we had that old Graham until we got the 1941 DeSoto, my father went up to Scrabble Hill, Oregon, which is just near Oregon City, and he preached there faithfully every Sabbath for years, and that was a Church of God Seventh-day church organization. And families like the Hinyons and the Coles and some of the other pioneer families of that era came there faithfully rather than coming all the way down to Eugene. I also remember that many men, including Bert Mars and Andrew Duggar and John Keyes and a man named Unziger and some other names whom I have forgotten, were regular guests uh, as if they were not only just guests but just part of the preaching schedule in the pulpit in Eugene, Oregon. And I mentioned that to them up there. And then I mentioned that the recent history of the churches of God have been just about exactly the same as they were back during those days in Oregon when my father was first getting a start. Now, to Andrew Duggar, my father was a Bolshevist breakaway. He was an iconoclast, a hardhead, an individual who not only would not share the tithes that came into him with the headquarters church, but who insisted on preaching doctrines that had not been approved by the general headquarters. But in the meantime, they themselves had experienced a split or a division, and really the Oregon Conference of the Church of God was like a subdivision of those two divisions out of Stanbury and Salem, West Virginia. And just who was over which group, I'm a little vague on myself because I was only a boy. But I got to thinking about that, and then I thought about what has happened to the Church of God since 1974. 
and how many ministers had broken away. Some of them have simply gone right back into the world and given up and quit altogether. Others have formed various church organizations, some of which are in a very minor way still alive. In one case, I know of one minister that still does keep the Feast of Tabernacles every year up around Carnelian Bay, right next door to Kings Beach, where we will be on beautiful Lake Tahoe, with his own family and the members maybe of a close in-law family, maybe eight, ten, twelve of them all together, and that's all they have, but they still continue to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. And I think of Raymond Cole, who broke away because he refused to go along with the change on divorce and remarriage and how to count Pentecost. And Fred Coulter, who was kicked out of the WCG for reasons I do not know and I thought was very friendly to me. Matter of fact, I was on the telephone with him shortly before his own demise, and he told me that he was going to go down to visit my father in Tucson, and he said, Ted, would you like me to hand deliver to your father a letter? Well, I couldn't have any communication with my dad because I was totally cut off by the people who were surrounding him, including Raider and Cornwall and his wife Ramona, whom he has subsequently divorced. And so I jumped at the chance, and I said, yes, I'd love to uh, have you take the letter to him. So I wrote a very personal letter and sent it to Fred Coulter. Of course, I never got the letter back, and Fred never took the trip and never gave the letter to my dad. But for some reason, Fred Coulter doesn't like me very much, and he's never written to me to tell me precisely why. I really, well, I know a lot of things about me that I don't like either. I mean, he and I may be in agreement for all I know. I mean, he and I may actually dislike the same things about me, and we could probably shake hands and say, Ted, you're really a clod when you get right down to it. And I'd say, you're right, Fred, you really are. But you see, because I'm too big a coward to commit suicide, I don't know what to do about it except do what I'm doing and just keep trying to grow as best I possibly can with God's help. But Fred has started a church organization. Now, how many are there? I mean, if you start trying to count them, some of those that went with Paul Na uh, was it Knapp? I've forgotten his name even, but the red-headed fellow over in North Carolina. And uh, Westby, and then there was Carozo, and, and there is uh, Paul Royer, whom I mentioned with a little group, and there is Raymond Cole and his group, and there is Fred Coulter and his group, and there's Garner Ted, as they would say, and his group, and there's the Worldwide Church and the group there, and there are other groups all over the place today. There may be more than two dozen of them. And it makes me wonder... What was going through the minds of the people that sat and listened for years and years and years in the 1950s and the 1960s when they were told repetitiously split and division and schisms, and it should be pronounced schisms, not schisms, although some dictionaries are beginning to say that that is a second acceptable pronunciation if you would like it, I guess, would arise, and that before the second coming of Christ, a great falling away would occur. Now, I do not regard what is happening here in Tyler as being a falling away. Every now and then, someone will come up with a statement of absolute amazement. Recently, I was talking to David Andean on the telephone. He had run across one of the members of the WCG who had known him formerly and, I guess, dared to be kind and talk to him. And he said, he said, well, you don't keep the Sabbath and the holy days, do you? And Dave had to say, well, of course we do. And he was dumbfounded. He had been told by his leadership for over four years that Ted has abandoned the Sabbath and abandoned the holy days. And one of the reasons that I myself have had my own problems with some men who would have been leaders and quite prominent in the Church of God 
International had they remained here, was the subject of tithing and the subject of the annual holy days because I wasn't going to be moved. Now, I've revealed the tertiary reason, it's an important reason nevertheless, for the creation of the Garner Ted Armstrong Evangelistic Association. Yes, it is a sponsoring body for the television and the radio programs, and yes, it is a body which can appeal for its support to the general masses of people, be they Catholic, Baptist, Methodist, Lutheran, or whatever they may be. But also, it is an organization of which I am the head. And I will not be backed into a corner in that organization and, and forced to give up the Sabbath, the Holy Days, tithing, or any other of the doctrines of the Word of God. And when I began seeing what I thought was the handwriting on the wall, and I'll take a moment to explain it before we get into the book of the Bible that I want to go through that is certainly exemplary of the same problem and shows that clear back in the first century we had that same situation developing in God's true church. I began to see the handwriting on the wall. We as a body were overreacting. For a number of years there were people who wanted no government at all in the Church of God. Any kind of government, any systematization, any controls, any vertical arrangement of power or authority was totally suspect. Because Garner Ted, they said, is just like his father and is going to be a chip off the old block and he's going to emerge as a dictator. So, as even I began to experience difficulty in writing and found some of the things that I wrote in booklets coming back to me absolutely butchered until they were unrecognizable. I once had a secretary who rewrote a letter for me. There was a lady that wrote in a letter and she was in a very rotten spirit and she accused a lot of things and I sat down and I wrote a letter to her. Just on the moment as I read her letter and what came out of my heart, I put down in the typewriter. I came back to work and I found my letter was typed up, letter B, and over here was letter A, a, a better letter, obviously, that had been written by my secretary. Now, that was a couple, three secretaries ago, you know, so I talked to her and I said, look, I, I think we're really sitting at the wrong desk. I think you should be writing the letters, and perhaps I should be typing them. But I thought, if the Holy Spirit can inspire me, and I hope and certainly pray that God's Spirit does inspire me to do radio programs or to do television programs or to preach a sermon once in a while, can the Holy Spirit inspire my mind to answer one-on-one, -on -one, just like a personal letter, and flow from my fingers through the typewriter and put words on paper in the same way that words may be indelibly put electronically on tape? And I thought, does that need to be edited or not? And it disturbed me a little bit. And I began to see these things growing in the organization until eventually we had our own little problem back in early 1980, and we experienced quite a loss. A lot of people, you see, at that time had a lot of respect for certain men who had been preaching at the Feast of Tabernacles in 1979. Men like Mr. Albert J. Fortune and Mr. Wayne Cole and Mr. Richard Prince. And they are men who still command a great deal of respect and perhaps rightly show so. Perhaps rightly they should. Let me now take you to the book of 1 Corinthians and show you something. Thinking about the history of the Church of God as I know it from a boy in Oregon. 
of all of the many men who tried to take over various segments of the church for themselves, all through my father's early years, all those who have since come and gone in the various schisms and splits and divisions. And if this is not just about like a clinical, precise dissection of the body to show exactly what was happening in God's church then, and the Apostle Paul, while he yet lived in approximately 59 A.D., about, oh, 28 years after the founding of the church, after the day of Pentecost in 31 A.D. or so, time enough, I suppose, for young babies to be born, to meet, to come to love each other, to be married, and to have children of their own. Four or five-year-olds, little babes in arms, young families could have been sitting in a congregation in Corinth who themselves were not born at the ascension of Jesus Christ. So you get an idea, a little bit of a feeling of the age of the church. It was like a second generation church by the time the Apostle Paul is writing the church at Corinth. Chapter 1, we'll read, as we do in 2 Corinthians and several of the rest of them, how Paul spent an awful lot of time defending himself. He simply spent a lot of time defending himself to his own brethren, telling them how much he loved them, as you heard a little bit in the sermonette, and telling them that they ought to love him in return, as you also heard in the sermonette, but defending his office, his title, his calling, his position, defending even his motives, trying to tell the church, hey, you know, he sounded, I guess, like Richard Nixon, I'm not a crook. But in Paul's case, he really wasn't. I, Paul, called to be an apostle. Now, you'll notice that he never used the word the apostle. As a matter of fact, the only place you will find an apostle of God or God's apostle is in the book of Hebrews in relation to the apostle of our profession, Jesus Christ. Otherwise, Paul merely refers to himself as one of the apostles. And as you know, apostle merely means one who was sent. It was never meant to be a title of great office. It was a designation of a function of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother. Now, if this is the same one, and it probably is mentioned back in Acts 18.17. He is a young man who began to assist the Apostle Paul. A lot of us are not familiar with men like Gaius and Aristarchus and Segundus and Luke. We remember, of course, a very close companion of Paul and somewhat of a historian. And uh, some lady wrote to me one time and really took me to task for my book, Peter's Story. She said, oh, I enjoyed the real Jesus. She said, but uh, Garner Ted, she said, Luke was not one of the twelve. And she said, therefore, I just was really disappointed in Peter's story. She said, enjoyed real Jesus, but sorry about Peter's story. I wanted to write to her and tell her to read the first few words of the gospel according to Luke. But I thought, why bother? No, Luke was one of the original 120. He was one of those who accompanied with Peter and James and all the rest of them from the very beginning. And when he wrote his gospel, he said he was an eyewitness to all that had happened. And he was also a constant companion later on to the Apostle Paul. Well, there was Demas, there was Timotheus, and there were all of these young men, probably a dozen or more, including men like Barnabas and Silvanus, who were a little older and closer to Paul's own age. So Sosthenes may have been the one who wrote it, could have been written by another young man. The Apostle Paul very rarely wrote these epistles himself. He apparently had an eye disease. On one occasion, in order to prove the authenticity, he had to say, you see how with large letters I have written in my own hand, and he signed the end of one of his letters. 
So his introductions are usually always, we think of, a little bit flowery. But you know, he's leading up to something, and this is church literature, and let's think of it in its historical context. Under the church of God, now you'll find that in the 10th chapter, verse 32, in chapter 11 and verse 22, chapter 15 and verse 9, all of the same book, that expression is used. In Acts 20 and 28, 2 Corinthians 1, 1, Galatians 1, 13, and many, many other places. The church of God. You will not find in reading through the Bible that there is any church ever authorized to be a church named after a certain method of doctrinal study, which would be called the methodical church or the Methodists. You can't find it there because it's not there. You can't find any place in the entire Bible where because the one rite of baptism is required of Christians that the church ought to be called the Baptis, as they call it in this part of the world, and spell it B-A-B-T-I-S. I get a lot of letters where people write it that way when they write in and say, I, I used to be a Baptist. Well, that's what they've always heard it pronounced. Baptist, of course, after John the Baptist, or the rite of baptism. You don't find that it should be those who believe in the Advent, but who also believe in the Sabbath, and therefore the Seventh-day Adventists, or First Church of Christ scientists, meaning they have a scientific method of dissecting the Scriptures. But the Church of God is the Bible name for the Church of God. Now it is said, which is at Corinth, merely the geographical location. To them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Now he gets to the text why he's writing. He's very diplomatic, but he immediately gets into a problem. Same kind of problem we've got today. Same kind of problem we've had up in the central part of the United States in the Midwest. Same problem we had in Portland, Oregon. Same problem we had in St. Louis. Same problem we had in Kansas City. Same problem we have wherever you have human beings in which is ego and vanity and jealousy and everything except the type of spirit that Joe was talking about in the sermonette. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ that in everything you're enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Now remember who these people are. Remember, I think I gave you before the little analogy of why Jesus said, remember Lot's wife. And I talked about the degree to which the environment can soil and sully your conscience. The degree to which the world around you rubs off on you, changes you in many ways, alters you in many ways. And that's why even though Lot's wife would have been looked upon, I suppose, as normally a, a good woman. She had two virginal daughters. Lot was called that just Lot, that righteous soul who was troubled by all that he saw. He is called just twice and righteous once in three verses in the book of Hebrews. Yet a man who, when some mincing perverts were trying to commit sodomy with a couple of angels on the very doorstoop of his home, had such incredibly mysterious values that he was willing to give his two 17 or 18-year-old virginal daughters to these beasts and say, here, have yourselves a gang rape on my own doorstoop. Go ahead, do whatever you will with my young lovely girls, but leave my guests alone. Now, you try to figure that out. 
And then you'll understand a little more maybe why it was that God exacted the ultimate penalty, the death sentence on Mrs. Lot. When he had to wrest those people out of there, and, and I sometimes like to use that analogy to us, to myself, to all of us, God sometimes has to use virtually a spiritual crowbar to wrest us loose from the hold this society has on us. Have you ever gone abalone diving? Well, abalone, you know, are one of these big, like a mollusk, but it's a, a half shell, a big purplish, beautiful shell like this. People eat them, and they shouldn't. I ate one once when I was young enough not to... Well, I should have known better, been taught better, but I didn't do any better. But I used to go abalone diving, and you'd take either a tire iron or you would take a very sharp knife, and you'd take an inner tube and a gunny sack, and you'd take your, your fins and so on, you'd dive down. You'd go down about 11, 12, 15, 17 feet. Your ears hurt, and you're down there, and a seaweed will... You know, it can get pretty hairy and pretty scary down there in the surf. Not the surf, but off the rocks at Dana Point in Southern California. Well, when you'd collect them, you'd want to get two or three at a time if you could. And you'd always try to come toward the... The, the one part of it where you could see it was like the head of the thing, where the little knurled portion fits, and they can feel any motion in the water. And boy, can they grip those rocks. They, they have a suction that is incredible. And if you miss that one spot, and you can even pry and pry and pry with a knife, and a lot of times you'll about have to cut the thing up and break the shell to get them loose. Well, what is crazy, if you do it just right, you can flip them loose if you kind of sneak up on them and flip the suction that they have on the rock and turn them up, and then there they are helpless. And so you take one and you stick him on your stomach, and he immediately starts, you know, bringing the blood to the surface and getting you a big hickey on your stomach. <laughs> well, you try to get another one, see? And that way you can take two to the surface and then, you know, get this guy loose from your stomach and put him in your gunny sack and go back down for some more. And every time I think of how difficult it was sometimes to get these abalone loose from a rock, I think that's like how difficult it is for God to use a spiritual crowbar to just pry us loose from the hold we've got on this society and how much we love it. I noticed even my dad in his personal in the, newspaper, in the uh, magazine the other day was writing about how he was sitting there watching Johnny Carson. I thought, you know, isn't that funny? My dad and I are sitting there. It's kind of stupid when you think of it that way. We're sitting there watching the same show. We're laughing at the same jokes. He and I are probably watching the same football games. We're probably ordering the same kind of food in restaurants and so on. But he doesn't want to talk to me. Now, I'd love to talk to him. You know, I've asked him many, many times. He doesn't want to talk to me. So I, I have a hard time. On it. Well, never mind. We'll get off that subject. But, you know, Mrs. Lott was like that abalone stuck on a rock. And if you can imagine, here was a city of absolute perverts, and she had to look back. And so God struck her, and she became stone dead instantly and turned into a pillar of salt. Some people like to argue that that was not real salt. Well, I'll just leave that up to them to argue. The Bible says it was, so I'm going to take that at face value. Uh, some like to claim that she became merely a perpetual monument, that salt pillars were used as a perpetual remembrance or a perpetual monument, so therefore she was slain in some way, but it was only symbolic. Well, I won't argue that with them. But we'll notice here that these people were Corinthians. They were Greeks in the broad majority. They had been absolutely pagan. They lived in a city of just under a half million in size, wherein were temples to everybody from... Uh, every one of the pagan Greek gods to Diana to uh, Asclepios and various healing gods and so on. And 
very few of you probably had very much Greek mythology. Anybody here have a study, a special course in Greek mythology in high school or college? Have you read Homer and some of the Greek classics? Some of us have read a little bit of the Greek classics, but very few have read probably very much of them. Well, with what little bit you recall, you will recall that the gods of the Greeks were given gross human appetites. And without going into it in great detail, nearly always those were Freudian in nature. And practically every tale or story of every so-called god had certain libidinous uh, uh, aspects to it. And they were orgiastic, they were, were bestial, they had uh, unbelievable, insatiable appetites, they would fight and war, uh, and so on. Now, you've got to think that these are absolute Gentiles. They're probably a little darker skinned than we are. They're very excitable people. They are very emotional people. Many of you have traveled to overseas countries. If you've ever been in downtown Rome at noonday in the middle of a traffic jam in one of the squares, you have never seen anybody get quite as excited as an Italian cab driver in a traffic jam. They will lean halfway out of the window and they do this gesture. I'm not sure what it means. Maybe I shouldn't even repeat it. Yeah, what's the matter for you, Tony? You don't got any brains, you idiot. You know, and they're screaming at each other. Absolutely chaos. Now, one of the more chaotic areas of the world that I've been in, Southeast Asia, another hideously chaotic country, is Mexico. Another one, and then you can just start naming them from there, is Guatemala, Honduras. You can go all the way south to every one of the, of the uh, major nations, including La Argentina. You know, we call it Argentina. It is the Argentine. Like, a lot of people don't understand when they talk about the Lebanon. It is an area that is called the Lebanon. It's like the United States. We say Lebanon. Anyway, many of those people are very emotional. Now, when they are converted, I've known many of our Mexican brethren, and I mean true Mexicans in the sense of being Mexican national citizens. I don't make that mistake. I'm not an ethnic person, so I don't call United States citizens born in this country who are of Spanish descent Mexicans, like some people do. Uh, one young man named Dean Blackwell one time, I believe it was, uh, told an Armenian that the Mexicans meet down in Los Angeles. I don't like to make that kind of a mistake if I can avoid it, so I don't use that term. But they can be very emotional people. When they're converted, they can be absolutely the most loving, warm. I guess one of the most inspiring remembrances that I will ever have is our trip to the Philippines when all of the Filipino brethren in the Manila church threw a party for us in a private home. And I think that outpouring, those, those people, even though they're up in middle age, are like little children. They just are. They're childlike in their attitude, they're childlike even in their stature, and they seem to be perennially young. They can be up in their 50s and they look very, very young. And they are so loving and so friendly and so warm. Now, I want you to get the background here to realize that Paul is not dealing with a lot of Southerners or Yankees. He's not dealing with Americans of any background or stripe. He's not dealing with people of a very, very strong sense of independence which most of us have, or America wouldn't be here the way she is. Uh, he's not dealing with hard-headed Israelites. He's dealing with emotional Gentiles whose total background has been in utter, unbelievable depravity and perversion where open transvestism, homosexuality of every stripe, 
even lauded and praised out in public undressed. I'm not talking about closet queens. I'm talking about people who paraded their perversion. And some of the greatest teachers they had ever read, Plato, Socrates, Epictetus, all the rest of them, were queers and wrote of their desires to have little boys. So put that into your thinking and realize the kind of people the Apostle Paul was dealing with. And there were only so few years pulled loose with that crowbar like the abalone out of that rotten society in which they lived. And yet they came behind in no gift. They had an increase of utterance and knowledge. Notice in verse 7, so that you come behind in no gift. A lot of people in the church today would love to have the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts of speaking in languages would be the first in many people's minds, even though God places it last. A lot of people will refuse to get that point. Even knowledge, increased knowledge, just having a, a fund of knowledge that a lot of us lack should be a desire of ours. If you want a gift is to ask God for spiritual knowledge. People don't pray for that as much as they pray for healing in tongues, healing in tongues, healing in tongues. And they want to get emotional about those two. Do you ever hear anybody get emotional about wisdom? Real emotional about knowledge or faith? And yet every one of those are listed before healing in tongues. But they came behind in no gift. They even had those lesser gifts, including healing in tongues. Verse 7, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end that you may be blameless. Now, that doesn't mean perfect. That means forgiven. That means without blame. Oftentimes, if you're not careful, you set for yourself a goal that a little voice in the back of your head tells you is unattainable. And you become a little bit defeated and discouraged. You think, maybe I can't make it because you think God is going to require that you be perfect immediately. And you're not perfect yet. And so you begin to think, well, I probably can't make it. Don't ever think that. Just think Christ did make it, and he's big enough to pull you right on into the kingdom with him. Confirm you unto the end. Notice verse 8, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now he gets to a, an appeal, very quickly, right in the first opening portion. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's all the power and the authority that he can put behind it, that you all speak the same thing that there be no divisions. And that is the Greek word schisma, or schism, from which we take the word schism. That means a party. It means a certain group of people who divide along beliefs or doctrinal lines. He beseeches the church that they speak the same thing, that there be no schisms among them, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. In verse 11, For it has been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are the house of Chloe. Now, Chloe is a woman, apparently she was either a deaconess or very well-respected lady of the church. They had either written or a messenger had reached the Apostle Paul and told of all of these difficulties. The Apostle Paul had no doubt heard it from more than one source, that there are contentions among you. Now, the word is strifes in the Greek, striving. And it takes me back. It makes me remember. I know churches that we have, various small groups and organizations right now, study groups, places where you have two hosts, where you have you know, ministers and people that don't like the ministers or what have you, areas where you have carryover from the past. 
where someone might just not like the personality of somebody else. Someone made a big mistake when they were in the WCG and they got kicked out of the WCG. And people that are now in the Church of God International remember that mistake they made way, way back where, so they disrespect them and they will not look to them as any kind of a leader. We have those problems. And they cannot simply divorce themselves from the past and let it go, but they have contentions. They have antagonisms. They have personality problems. Now this I say, that every one of you, the whole church was off in one way or another divided, says, I am a Paul. Now, you know, Paul should have been happy about that. I know a lot of men that would have been. And they would have written this letter totally differently than Paul did. They would have written to appeal to all of those who are of Paul and to subtly appeal to the vanity of those who said they were of Apollos or Kephas or Christ. And they would have said, all I've got here are four splits. And I've already got 25%. How do I work on the other 75%? But not Paul. He equally rebuked those who said they were after him. They followed him. A lot of people preach for 10 years. And when the bottom line comes down, I don't care what the sermon was, every time you heard the man preach, he was saying one thing underneath, subtly. Follow me, follow me, follow me. You ever heard a sermon like that? I've heard several in my time. And I was able to spot one or two of them. I would tell my wife years before, I won't mention a name, but years before one particular man started his own church, I told her that, that he was going to do so. Just a matter of time. I knew it would come. And I even told him that, come to think of it. So he said, I am a Paul, I of Apollos, and I of Kephas, or meaning Peter, that is the Greek word for him, meaning stone or pebble, and I of Christ. Now, that's really interesting. Because no doubt the ones in the church who said, well, they say they're of a man, but I am of Christ. Do you know that even saying that, saying, well, they say they're going to follow Herbert, or they're going to follow John or George, or they're going to follow Raymond, or they're going to follow Ted or somebody, but I, as for me and my family, we shall follow Christ. Do you know that even that statement can be a divisive statement? It says so here in the Bible. Those who said, I am of Christ were equally chastised as those who said, I am of Paul, or I am of Peter, or I am of Apollos. Is Christ divided? Was Christ somehow compartmentalized or divided up? Are there various divisions and all are in Christ? Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius. Now, this is an interesting thing to me, and it shows the spontaneity of the dictation. Notice how the Apostle Paul, he's not real elderly, and he's certainly not senile. He may be by this time up in his 60s, we don't know. He probably was at least 30 before he was admitted to the Sanhedrin, so he's probably at, at least 58, maybe closer to 68 or 70 by this time, but he is no young spring chicken, but on the other hand, neither is he senile or forgetful. But look how he expresses and exposes his own humanity. I thank God that I baptized none of you, but Crispus and Gaius. They leapt into his mind. He thought of them. And then he said, lest any should say, I baptized in mine own name. Oh, and I baptized also 
See, he, he remembers and then he adds so they won't think, well, some of them will say, wait a minute, Paul, you lied there. You also baptized the whole household of Stephanus. Oh, yes, he thought, I baptized them. I'd better remember that. So he quoted that to the young man who was taking dictation. Besides, and then he covered a human memory, a failing of human memory. Was there one or two others? Uh, were there? I don't remember. So he said, besides, I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross, and the Greek word I repeat is stauros, S-T-A-U-R-O-S, which has no cross piece attached to it at all, but means upright pale or stake, lest the stauros or the stake or the tree of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that are perished, and that is in the present tense, foolishness, but unto us which are saved, I like that line, it is the power of God. You know, the Apostle Paul was not ashamed to use that phrase. He didn't think the church would somehow get away from him if he didn't keep them in control. Here was a church very remote from him, even though he'd been very active uh, with them, and of course wrote two of the most lengthy and knew and no doubt loved personally many of the people who were there. He never felt that he had to keep them cowering in fear of him, and he never felt that he had to keep them in doubt of their salvation. Now, I never heard a sermon from 1952 until the founding, virtually, the Church of God International that told me, that encouraged me, that let me know I have been saved. But I heard hundreds of them that threatened me and that warned me, and many of which have me believing the possibilities that I can't ever be, or rather remote. But here's Paul writing to the church, unto us which are saved, and yet he's writing to people who said, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Christ. Mr. Ron Dart asked a question in a recent sermon. He said he wondered just how far a church could stray from the total body of truth. He didn't put it exactly that way until it was no longer a part of the church of God. You know, I have to say, I'm not really sure. But I look at the letters to the Corinthian church here, and I look at all of the problems that they had. I puzzle over the letters to the churches scattered throughout Asia Minor, in which we read of all of their difficulties in Revelation 2 and Revelation 3, where they had a woman called Jezebel who was actually causing some of the Gentiles to go back to what had been common, which was prostitution and temporal rituals, and was actually teaching that fornication was part of a religious service, and some of the brethren were going along with it in Thyatira. Here were people who had every conceivable problem, let us do evil that good may come, like the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. There were those who had every conceivable weird belief they were threatened with their candlestick being moved out of their place. They were told they were lukewarm. They were told to hold fast that which you have or that which remains. They were told that some of you have not sunk into the absolute depths of Satan the devil. So as I study each one of these local churches, I think, well, let's take a look at North Carolina and up here Ozarks and Kansas City and in Tyler and Big Sandy and out in Pasadena and up in Seattle down in San Diego, and let's take the spiritual temperature of all these various churches, of all these various congregations, and let's ask, are they any different today? Are the problems any different than they were during Paul's day? And it sounds to me like this letter could have been written yesterday, like it could be something that could come out of this office or any one of the church offices and be sent to any given congregation at any given time.
For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. Verse 19, it will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? Trying to tell them that their pride in their pagan Greek philosophers and the great minds of those men was absolutely nothing. For after that, in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness, and he is speaking obviously facetiously, the foolishness of preaching, meaning the way the world would put it. You could put italics around that or quotation marks to save them that believe, for the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. That was a part of their culture and their heritage. They were very proud of their culture, of their architecture, of their sculptures, of their magnificent big temples and buildings, and they were very proud of their various studies in everything from trigonometry and uh, the various abstracts of mathematics, which they certainly were very advanced in, or you could not see the type of building and construction and engineering that they achieved. But he said, we preach Christ crucified, that is, Christ affixed to an upright pale, unto the Jews a stumbling block, and unto the Greeks foolishness, but unto them which are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now I'm going to begin to skim just a little bit as I come along into the next couple of chapters. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men. Not that there is any such thing as the foolishness of God, meaning literally the foolish thing. Some thing that has been made, let's say maybe man would be the foolish thing, is wiser. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. For you see your calling, brethren. How many times have I seen that scripture quoted? How that not many wise men after the flesh... Not many mighty, not many noble are called. I do not know to this day in the church, the church at large, the whole church, the church in its disintegrated form of very many. And I do know that there were very few, and I always remember the few that would sit there and say, well, I'm glad I'm the exception. But, but uh, nevertheless, I don't know of any noble person of noble birth. I, I didn't know mighty men or wise men, mostly the very wealthy, the great achievers, uh, the finest uh, great doctors and this and that uh, steer pretty clear of religion. Their minds are simply not going to be reached in this day and age and are not members of God's church. But God has chosen the foolish, and it really is people, not things, foolish people of the world to confound the wise. And God has chosen the weak people of the world to confound the people which are mighty and base people of the world and people which are despised has God chosen. Yes, and people which are not, meaning they're paid no attention to, they virtually are as if they do not exist, they, they don't uh, make any impact on civilization one way or the other, to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. He's not going to have superstars and heroes in the kingdom, but little people and babes and, and just the, really the dregs, a motley crowd of dregs of society that are made into the very body of Jesus Christ. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. In other words, saying that all of that is embodied in Jesus Christ. That, according as it is written, he that glories, let him glory in the Lord. Now, he begins to defend himself, and I'll skim along a little bit. He reminds him in verse 1 and 2 that he was there and trembling and was only going to preach Jesus Christ. He didn't come preaching himself. He said his preaching, verse 4, was not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, yet when you read what he said before some of the leaders of the Jewish nation on trial for his life in the latter chapters of the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul could be quite eloquent. 
but nowhere near like Tertullus. It wasn't flowery. It wasn't like the Greeks. That your faith, verse 5, should not stand in the wisdom of men. But I remember years ago that there was a great deal of emphasis on the wisdom of men. And there was a great attempt that was made subtly, I don't think intentionally, I think sincerely, to have us admire the brain of certain men. The church was told for years that the greatest historian that had ever walked the earth was Herman Hay. The church was told for years that the greatest geologist who had ever lived was Ken Herman. And no doubt in the millennium the time was going to come when all history would be under one man. Now, nonsense. Just nonsense. There had to come a time when I told my father, I said, I have preached Dr. Herman Hayes' chronology for the last time. I said, they don't come looking for Herman Hay. I never yet have known of a single newspaper reporter or a single television interviewer, a single, a single call-in talk show moderator that says, I want to get Dr. Herman Hay. I want to sit him here on the frying pan and ask him about all these things about 1972 and 1975 and the, seven, uh, the four or seven-year cycles and the 19-year cycles and all these beautiful ideas about doctrine and prophecy. And I told my dad, I said, I'm just not going to do it anymore. It's not true. I don't believe it. Now, I got in trouble, but where are we? Is this Tyler, Texas, or is it not? Am I crazy, or is this, uh, is this Petra? And did Christ come in 1975? The way it was all worked out and the way I used to put it on the board and try to get our second-year Bible class students to put down their notes was all beautifully put together by Dr. Herman Hay. And I had to find out some of these men didn't know what they were talking about. They weren't any more of a scholar than I was. I found out that the average person in the church can read a history book and get exactly out of it than anybody else can get out of it. So, you know, if we had been taught all the time that we really were foolish people, we really were the dregs and rather a motley crowd, and that God had had mercy on us, and that it was only in and through the knowledge and the wisdom of Jesus Christ that we could glory, and then the glory always goes to Him, and it's in Him and through Him and out of ourselves, we wouldn't have had our many heroes. But for years the church had its heroes. The church had its scholars. I remember when scholarship uh, was uh, and scholastic ability and research ability and IQ was pounded into the heads of Ambassador College students and they virtually worshipped at the altar of scholarship. And I know what I'm talking about. I was there. Yet I lived to see years later anyone who was a scholar put down and trampled in the mire and told he was a fool. Now I see once again that scholarship is coming back. And I'm getting whiplash looking back and forth. You know, I don't know which way to go here. Uh, when I was first ousted, all scholarship, anybody who could think, I guess, and of course that's why for years I said that our safety is three things, you know, think, 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 was really suspect. And, and you read some of those things and heard some of those things, that, that scholarship was what made the church veer left and the church was getting libertine and the church was getting very, very leftist and it was getting liberal. That's a term that is used oftentimes. People want to put you down. You're liberal. Well, let me tell you that Jesus Christ was the greatest scholar who ever lived and Jesus Christ may have come in contact with a certain amount of pagan Greek mythology or literature, but he understood it and understood that most literature is total trash, and of the writing of books there is no end, and that most of them are not fit to read. And Jesus Christ of Nazareth could pick up a book, which he certainly did because he was an educated man, and question the motives of the author, 
and know that the author was in all likelihood a fool. He knew one thing for sure, didn't he? He knew the author was not converted. He knew the author did not have God's Holy Spirit. So Jesus read, no doubt, and studied with caution. No, we do not glory in men. To repeat a phrase another man has repeated time and again, we have no superstars. We're all equals in Christ. And I, brethren, he said, when I came unto you, he began to tell about how he was speaking only what the world would call foolishness, that their faith, verse 5, would not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Albeit we speak wisdom among them that are perfect, yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew. What is he talking about? I can tell you in a nutshell, in perhaps, you know, 45 seconds, what he's talking about. How many of the princes of this world know that God is the creator, that God is a family, that God is recreating after the God kind, that you can be born of God and become a member of God, of the God family? Now, that's 45 seconds or so. How many of the great leaders of this world know what I packed into 45 seconds? Now, that's the truth of God, is the truth of the Word of God, and that is a mystery above all mysteries. How can a human being, doing what we do every day, without going into great detail, uh, sometimes uh, we ought to be thankful for the fact that God made skin opaque, because it would be so ugly going around seeing what you had for breakfast and what your digestive juices have been busily doing to it ever since. I would not want to see that. It's more fun to look at you in the face and see your eyes and your cheeks and your lips and all of that and smile at one another. It reminds me of the Stan, what was his name, Stan Freeberg, or whatever his name was, and had this little record about uh, Ain't You Glad You Got Skin, remember that? He, uh, he put it to some other tomb. He said, you got to have skin. How'd that go? And he said, skin is what you feel at home in. Uh, and without it, furthermore, both your liver and abdomen would keep falling on the floor and you'd be dressed in your intestine. It fits perfectly. Yours fits you and mine fits me. When you stand, it looks grand, and then when you sit, it's where it's been. Ain't you glad you got skin? And, and I thought about it. It's really a true song, I'm glad I got skin, because once I put that food in there, it tasted good going down, but I don't want to see what I did to it when I got it all mixed up and everything. And once in a while, when you get sick, and even the kids know that, and it's awful to barf, but uh, you do have to see what you did to it. And you get sick, and it comes right back up, and you all gag, you know. You can't believe it. It smells that bad. And a funny thing to me is that everybody smells the same. That's the craziest thing, is that we all do the same thing. Anyway, so anytime you get to thinking how big you are, you know, you can think about the daily necessities, and you can think about the fact that we're all the same human beings. We do the same things to our food. So we are not mighty. We're not great. We have nothing to glory about. You know, I... I have been recently reading the memoirs of William Manchester, and it is a very interesting book, very uh, gross in some areas, but it's the memoirs of a young man who was a sergeant in the 1st Marine Division on Guadalcanal and a man who became quite famous. He was for years a leading reporter and a columnist for one of the big eastern, I believe the Philadelphia newspaper, and had been the man who was involved in the suit you know, with the Kennedy family over writing the book uh, about the Kennedy family. William Manchester, you probably heard of the name at least somewhere in passing. 
And it's a very fascinating story. But I think that his cynicism is rather well-founded. And I think some of the conclusions he comes up with of, of the aftermath of the Pacific War are very, very interesting. He went almost as far as I did in saying that he actually believed that if there were no such thing as a general, but only a manager, and there were no such thing as a colonel, but a secretary, and no such thing as a sergeant, but just an organizer, that, and there were no such thing as a military salute or a military cap, and he advocated doing away with all medals. And if the armed forces of all the world would simply never give a man a medal, he said all this business of the martial feelings, of, of the machismo, of, of killing one another, might be done away. Now I want to step further and I say that all wars should be fought in the nude. And there should be no such things as uniforms. Now anciently, of course, men would dress up in tiger skins and they would dress up in lion's skins and they would scrape out the skull or the hide, you know, and then they would take the hide and they would put the teeth of the lion at the top of the skull here and the bottom teeth here and the ears and the black men in Africa, the witch doctors or whatever, would prance around on their spears that would make a man's face framed in the head of a lion. And it was a fantastic headdress. Our American Plains Indians would use buffalo heads and the shamans or the witch doctors would use buffalo headdress with the big horns coming out. The Vikings affected the horns of their cattle with steel or brass or bronze helmets and with horns coming out. And the military visor comes from that practice. Then anciently, in the days of Henry VIII and even before that, back to William the Conqueror and beyond, when men first began to wear armor, they put armor, I have a piece of it around here somewhere, and it had, you know, a, a little plate that came down over the eyes. But when it was up like this, even the Greeks, the Romans, the Parthians, and others had helmets made of metal. And sometimes they were quite decorative. Now a horse had a beautiful mane and they would crop it. And so the Greeks would take bright red and other types of, of material, like very stiff bristles, and they would put it in the top of a helmet and they would just trim it real neatly and it looked like a huge big horse's head. Very impressive. Man walks up to you and he's got build-up heels and a high peaked hat like they wore in Germany, and immediately he's much taller than normal and he's much more impressive. If in this minute a uniformed man were to walk in the door, a general, now, he's wearing a suit, and beneath the suit, he's wearing a pair of shorts. And beneath the short, well, never mind, but, I mean, he, he's going to look like anybody else, but because he's got stars, little stars. Now, what are stars? Well, stars don't have five points. Stars are round, but he won't have, won't, but anyway, they'll have five points. He'll walk in, he'll have the epaulets and the stars. They'll be flashing gold. He'll have some braid. He'll have what we call fruit salad. All they are is little leaves and acorns sewn in gold thread on his cap. But we'll all look. Wow, that's fantastic. But if a naked man walked in, why well, would all the girls would shriek and run, and the men would say, Oh, gag, grab him quick, and we'd haul him off in a staff car down to the police department, you know, and try to get some clothes on him. You wouldn't know he was a general. He could say, But I'm General Abernathy. He could say, Yeah, and I'm private enterprise, but you're going to jail, buddy, and that'd be the end of that. So I think as you study this thing of, of human vanity, and of the way men try to impress other men and how they glory and this business of the great parades and how people try to use power and leadership over other people, you come to understand a little more about human nature. No, the princes, the great 
laudatory leaders of this world do not know even the simplest truths of Almighty God. Verse 9, is it written, Eye has not seen, neither ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. And as best we nibble around the edges and try to get a little keyhole view out into the kingdom of God, we can't even begin to know. If you talk about anything in this world, including you kids, the most fun thing you can imagine doing, and when you do that, then you think of something else. If it's going to Six Flags and going around the loop, uh, or the, the fall over there, or the parachute drop, or if it's going backpacking in the mountains, I can tell you, just like those gals that went along and had a backpack trip, that is hard work, but it is fun. There's nothing like it. Getting up in that view, beautiful, pristine wilderness and, and seeing those beautiful trout up there and just being really closer to God, I think, because you're closer to nature. That is fun. Think of everything you can imagine you'd ever want to do. Fly an airplane, catch a trout in Lake Paupo or perhaps in New, New Zealand, uh, go visit some of the islands like Tarawa and, and maybe swim in the sound over a truck and look at an entire Japanese fleet resting on the bottom and swim around amongst old Japanese trucks and so on. Did you see the one issue of National Geographic where divers had done that and taken pictures of them? And here were trucks and bandoliers of 50 caliber machine gun ammunition down there just like they had been. But all the marine organisms had grown and it was actually like a garden of just every fabulous color of fan coral and, and little fish starting in and out, and here were just, I guess, a couple of dozen ships or so, tens of thousands of tonnage of military equipment, and what a fabulous trip that would be to go to a coral atoll and go scuba diving down there and see these relics of World War II. I mean, you can think of anything. I don't care whether you talk about going to a dance or going to a rock concert or talk about some sports event, anything you call fun, the greatest experiences of life, and put together 100 of them. And you haven't even begun to scratch the surface of what God has in store for you when you can say, watch this and disappear. Watch this and walk through a rock. Watch this and zip around the other side of Mars and bring back a rock and say, that's a rock from Mars. Or how about just riding on a lion? I mean, even little things like that in the kingdom of God, where it says that children will be able to not just look at animals in a zoo, but actually just lead them around like a... A child could be found asleep, cradling its head on the mane of a huge African lion. And that's why I think we just have a little, it's like Paul said, we really do see through a glass darkly, but eventually we will see face to face and we will come to know. But God has revealed unto us these things, verse 10, by his Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of God. For what man knows the things of a man? save the spirit of man which is in him. Now, you see the word spirit here in verse 11. And it means exactly the way you would think it means. It means our human spirit, that spiritual essence which is beyond mere brain, but which is that which gives us mind. It gives us savvy, understanding, intuition. There are many, many things you understand or you feel that you cannot articulate that you can't put into words. You grasp certain nuances of, of feelings about people, about God, about yourself, and there's no way to articulate them. And he's trying to tell you here that we understand spiritual planes oftentimes, the deep things of God, and the only way we do that is in a spiritual way, by the spirit of man which is in him. Even so, the things of God knows no man but the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given us of God. 
which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural, meaning carnal, man receives not the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him. Now that is so absolutely true. They used to be so much foolishness to me. And I'll tell you, your values so totally change, it is unbelievable. I can talk to people today, and I get so bored. I'm talking about maybe men that I'll meet out where I live, friends and neighbors of mine that I like. I gave you a sermon one time about a conversation when I was coming back with my friend Bob Hardy. And trying to reach minds of men like this, he normally respect. He's the head of IBM here in Tyler. He's got to be a very sharp person. He's good at mathematics. He's good at his business. He's good as a leader, no doubt. Other men out there, there's a retired uh, Air Force general. There are men who have made their mark in certain ways in society. You can talk to them. And in five minutes, you find yourself absolutely bored. You have no common ground. Their conversation is all surface, and it's very, very shallow. And after you get through talking a little bit about the weather, and talking a little bit about their families and what they do and whatever, just the latest chit-chat and comments about what's going on, you are totally lost. You cannot discuss the Middle East. You cannot discuss the national economy. You cannot discuss anything where you know and you know that you know almost intuitively what really is happening and why it is happening and what is going to happen in the light of Bible prophecy. And you hear these people making comments, like some of them out there that have been in Saudi Arabia, that you know what they call Arabs? They call Arabs out where I live, down near Lake Palestine, they call them sand niggers. That's no, no kidding. I mean, men that have been in Saudi Arabia for 30 years, they call them, oh yeah, them, them sand niggers down there. Saudi Arabia, you know them sand niggers, them Arabs. And I can understand in some ways how Texans don't go over too good in some foreign countries when I hear some of that. I'm going to skip along now into the third chapter right quickly and then conclude this with this, and I'll have to come along and, and perhaps ripple along through it next time and complete this in a two-part series because I want to get to the problems they had. Chapter 3, I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. But notice now, he can... He is not saying they're not totally, they're, they're not converted at all. He's not saying they don't have any of God's Holy Spirit. He just said they did. He just said they are saved, didn't he? He just said they come behind in no gift. But yet they can still act carnal, and they can still have a carnal portion in their personality. They were still babes spiritually. I have fed you with milk and not with meat. And we have been led in the years past to comment, boy, if this is the milk, what is the meat? And you know, the Apostle Paul, we have a warning from Peter about how Paul has written some things that are hard to be understood. For hitherto you were not able to bear it, neither yet are you now able. For you are yet carnal, for whereas there is among you envying and strife and divisions, are you not carnal and walk as men? Now certainly when you see that happening in a church organization, and people will argue, I mean, they will come up with reasons and excuses. They will play every little political ploy you can imagine. And really all they're doing is fighting each other. But they will do anything imaginable to try to gain the upper hand over somebody else when all they've got to really do is just come out and say, I want to be the big honky. I want to be in charge. I want to be the chief muckaluck or whatever he is. Mucky muck, I guess it is, in Aleut. So 
when you find that kind of a spirit and an attitude, you're seeing only one thing, just plain old carnal, carnal human vanity. While one saith, he's on the same subject, I'm of Paul, that's divisive, and another, I'm of Apollos, are you not carnal? And who is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers. Is Paul putting himself up or is Paul putting himself down? I say he's putting himself down. He's not trying to appeal to them to follow him. He's trying to say, don't follow me, follow Christ. That's his message here. And he is saying it to people who are determined they're going to split in every direction and follow some man. Some of them, of course, said they're going to follow Christ. They're not going to follow any man. But even that is divisive. So Paul is not subtly saying the opposite of what he appears to be saying. This is inspired of the Holy Spirit. Paul meant what he wrote, what he dictated. He didn't want them following him except following his good example. Obviously, when Paul said, and we read a little later on, Oh, wretched man that I am, he didn't want them to follow that example. He wanted them to follow the good example. Who is then is Paul and who is Apollos, but ministers, not the one apostle, not follow me, but who am I? Just a servant. I am a servant by whom you believed. I brought you some truth and I served you and you believed it, even as the Lord gave to every man. I have planted like a farmer, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. A farmer can be thankful for his crops, but he can't be and shouldn't be proud of them. He can't say, look what I grew. Boy, I had a great corn crop this year. He should say, oh, that's beautiful corn. Thank God for it. You know, because the farmer can't make it come out of the ground. He can stick the seed in the ground. He can water it. But only the miracle of God that God has built into that seed and God's uh, good weather is going to give it a good ear and a good row of nice yellow grain for you to eat. So then neither is he that plants anything, neither is he that waters, but God. He's glorifying God throughout here and putting man, including himself, down. Now he that plants and he that waters are one, and every man shall receive his own reward according to his own labor. For we are laborers together with God. You are God's husbandry. You are God's building. And that is a good analogy of the ministry. The ministry is any, nothing more than a, a group of carpenters wielding tools to build together a house. The ministry is nothing more than a bunch of farmers or agronomists or horticulturalists or tenders of vineyards or animal, uh, perhaps shepherds like husbandry, he uses that term here, and the, the flocks and the sheep and the cattle and so on that are the analogy of God's people. So they're people who tenderly care for the flock or who build up the building. According to the grace of God, which is given in me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation. Now, I was given a, a, a sermon over here in the Cedars of Lebanon Hall about, oh, three and a half years ago. A very strong warning was given to me in that sermon. I took the warning because I had no intention of building or of seeing the Church of God International built on any other foundation than Jesus Christ of Nazareth. I don't think anybody in this room has heard anybody any more consistently saying over the last four, four and a half years, follow Christ, don't follow me, follow Christ, don't follow me, pointing this congregation and the entire Church of God International to one person only, to Jesus Christ of Nazareth. But I remember that sermon very well, and I knew exactly what was behind it, and it bothered me a little bit, and in subsequent months. I had to be disappointed when I saw what eventually happened, perhaps as a result of a little signed piece of yellow paper and a little annual stipend that comes along, 
perhaps for other reasons. But the gentleman who gave the sermon and a very strong warning about be careful what you build and what kind of a foundation you lay, he could have said it in one word. He could have said, be careful of Ted Armstrong. And I would have been up there beside him and said, you're right. Be careful of Ted Armstrong. Watch him. But don't ever be careful of Jesus Christ. Just follow him. I could have easily done that. I like Paul's approach. According to the grace of God, which is given unto me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, and another buildeth thereon. But let every man take heed how he builds thereupon. For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And then he follows, and I'll complete with this analogy, the analogy of a building, six parts, gold, silver, and precious stones, wood, hay, and stubble, all three of the first, Half of these parts, of course, would survive a fire. Gold is more valuable, silver a little less, and precious stones a little less yet. Wood, more valuable than hay, will burn, but burn not so rapidly. Hay will burn very quickly. Stubble will almost explode. Three parts will be burnt up in a fire with different degrees of heat, of course, and with different quickness. Three constituent parts, the more hard ones, will survive a fire and are of different value. And it seems to be telling me approximately 50% will survive the fire. There's quite an analogy in 1 Peter 5 and other scriptures too about the fiery trial. It shall try you, 1 Peter 2. Every man's work shall be made manifest, for the day shall declare it, referring to the day of the Lord, because it shall be revealed by fire, and the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. Fire here being used as a type of tribulation or a trial or a temptation or of the great tribulation. And if any man's work abide, which he has built thereupon, he shall receive a reward. Now, there is nothing wrong with healthy competition. We live in a world of competition. It tells you to run. It tells you to fight. The Apostle Paul says, I fight daily. If you didn't have, even as a boy or a girl growing up, someone to race, you wouldn't race. You wouldn't get out there and struggle as hard as you do to keep a good, healthy, fit, trim body if little Johnny wasn't trying to run off and leave you behind. But seeing Johnny's departing rear end, you're going to try to catch up with Johnny, and if you can, you're going to beat him. There are certain types of competition that are good for you, where you're trying really to excel. Golf, running, tennis, some of those non-combative sports where you're not in physical contact with the other person. Basketball should be a non-contact, non-violent sport. Unfortunately, it is not. When it is played that way, it can be one of the most graceful, one of the most beautiful, and one of the most enjoyable sports to watch. But those would not be wrong in God's sight, and I'm not a bit unconvinced, but what certain games like that, where people can excel, they can enjoy them, will be played in the kingdom of God during the millennium. Tennis, golf, basketball, races, hurdles, high jump, pole vault. You're not trying to, to keep the other guy from doing his best. You're not trying to hurt him or injure him or uh, break his knees or anything else, but you're simply trying to leap farther or run faster or vault or jump higher than he is. And that's good for you. So, if you have the right kind of competition, you in a way are competing for positions in the kingdom of God. This likens the foundation, and that's exactly how this building was built, a great big huge slab of concrete that it sits upon, to Jesus Christ. That's the foundation. That's salvation. When you have Christ, you have salvation. You'll be in the kingdom. We're given a little picture that perhaps because David prayed, we don't know if it really means what it says, that he would rather be a doorkeeper 
in the kingdom of his father than to be left out. He'd rather just stand open doors. I'm not really certain that anybody's going to do that for all eternity. I don't think that's what that psalm is trying to tell us, that there are doorkeepers in the kingdom. But I know what he meant by it. There are going to be lesser positions and higher positions. I think some men may discover, and I may discover the same thing sometime, that their wives end up being in higher positions in the kingdom where people are neuter gender in the spirit than the husbands will be. I don't think that there is any reason why women's equality is not going to attain when women are born into the very family of God and become members of the God family. I'm sure that it can be. So we are told to be careful what kind of work what kind of workmanship we build upon that foundation, and that's merely talking about our own personal character development. I'll complete with the analogy of a mother, and we'll just pick it up right where I am without going any further in First Corinthians at this time, who, well, you know the example of many mothers, and you can see today so many of them are smoking and so many of them have got various uh, bad habits and poor health and they don't exercise and they don't eat correctly and maybe some of them are even smoking pot and doing all this type of thing. So then you have babies born that are undernourished and malformed and sometimes blind or deaf or what have you. And that's not always as a result of malnutrition or anything of the kind. I happen to know because my wife ate very well and we still have two deaf sons. But I'm saying that the, the condition of the parents and the kind of foods that the woman eats that she takes in is actually forming human tissue. I once had to visit a lady up in Big Sandy and just about all of her teeth were going to fall out and she didn't like milk. She hated milk and I for a time was the pastor of that little church up there during the summer of 1955. And I went over to visit her and they were just dirt poor and so I gave them a $20 bill out of my own pocket and just practically ordered, that's the way the ministry did things in those days, them to go down and buy raw milk and that she needed to drink that raw milk. Well, I found out later on they spent it for food and this and that, but they, she still couldn't get the milk down. Well, her baby was born at about the same time my son David was born, and her baby was born with great big red, literal, weeping sores, open red sores all over its little body. It was, I don't know, five or six pounds, my wife remembers, it was underweight, and just with, with horrible sores. And I don't know whether the kid ever became healthy. That kid must be 20 five or six now, for pity's sake, and I remember that very well. But here was a woman, and I told her, I said, look, the baby is going to get all the calcium in your body. You're going to take what you've got plus everything you're putting in if you don't replace that. And so she didn't understand why she was having bone and tooth problems. Her teeth were rotting out during this nine months of her pregnancy. And I guess she lost several more teeth, and I just couldn't seem to get across to this lady that she needed to have calcium going into her body. And I just tell her that Every bite of vegetables and every drink of milk and every bit of food that you put in your body and air that you breathe is being funneled through that umbilical into the very body of your baby. You are building a human life in there. And you've got to build it by putting the right nutrients in and getting the right sleep and the right diet and the right exercise and so on. And you'll have a healthy baby. If you don't, you won't. It's the same thing with us spiritually. We are what we imbibe mentally and spiritually. If we read nothing but trash, we are taking in nothing but trash. If we read and we, we listen, we hear, we see uplifting, inspiring, instructive, corrective, uh, helpful things, then we are imbibing good food and we are building good character. 
If we spend our time in nothing but entertainment and wasting of our time, sitting around looking at inanities on television, uh, reading trash for books just to while the time away, uh, we are eating rotten, stupid food. And the kind of character that we're building is exactly the way that lady mistreated her own unborn baby. So that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here about building. And I think we ought to take heed and think of what he is saying. But as we'll see a little later on, as I get into this more deeply, perhaps next Sabbath I can continue it and perhaps complete it. The church back then was not a bit different from the church today. They were human beings. They had the same problems. We've got those problems. All we need to do is to admit that we have some of those problems, know how to overcome them, and realize that we're no different, we're no worse, and we're no better than the Corinthian church were, uh, was at that time. In a lot of ways, we're very much alike.